Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The Book Pod is delighted to welcome today Tom Keneally, one of Australia's official national treasures and a writer whose fiction and non-fiction is admired around the world. Tom is also a winner of both the Booker Prize and not one but two Miles Franklin Awards. Tom, we never need an excuse to talk to you. There's always so much on the agenda. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, and now I'm an old uh, character. Hard to shut up, I'm afraid. Well, I am a bit of a sucker for an old character who has a bit to say. Collections of musings and agitations in recent months, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Barry Jones and also Don Watson about their most recent published rants. And now we have yours, aptly titled A Bloody Good Rant, which arrived in bookstores in early October. Tom, congratulations on the book. There are so many serious issues that you touch on in this book, but also many moments of gentle humour. I found myself shortling frequently at different parts. Your timing is perfect because there's so much to rant about. Politics and Australia's preparing for a federal election. Climate change is big on the agenda. We're all having a good rant about it. Yes, indeed. Tom, in a bloody good rant, you have a rant about so many topics. It's very diverse neoliberal economics, which we've talked about, anti-Semitism and the rise of Israel, bushfires, uh, Australia's various attempts mostly failed over recent years to address global warming, the arts and the appalling lack of federal support, particularly during the pandemic, as you say, the demise of universities, death, which you had a recent run-in with, grandparenting and the joys which you articulate so astutely. Tom, the Kick a line on the book, A Bloody Good Rant, is my passions, memories and demons. And I wonder what brought you to the idea of having a rant and turning it into a gorgeous hardcover and how and why you selected the topics that you did. Well, neoliberalism, this trickle-down trickle down economics, benefited a lot of us if we abstract from the fact that it has reduced a fifth of the population to an underclass. And uh, until modern times, we didn't have an underclass. We had all sorts of racial and other delusions, but we had a, a balanced society with great social capital, which is still there, which uh, 
one I felt I saw during COVID. The, the people you met who looked upon COVID as a left-wing conspiracy were fairly rare in Australia. You can't avoid them in America. So I, my argument was that, in a sense, the, the, the obsessed and the sort of delusion that leads to the attack on the Capitol uh, is made by people who've been used by a pedagogue. But these people are definitely the disinherited of globalists, the people whose grandparents worked in full-time jobs in manufacturing. They might, I hope they were fulfilling, but at least they made people a living and gave people a dignity and pretended not to make those desperate that they looked for a pedagogue until modern times. So I, I see the Trump people as very much the victims of trickle down. Trickle down said you globalize and the new industries we get into will employ everyone. Well, the new industries got bound in time to making commodities of everything, including schools. Uh, and I've seen how public schools have been made into a commodity in the US with companies taking them over in return for the state's input into them. So they take the state's budget county's budget and they run them as a profit with teachers who have no union right i was talking to emeritus professor yesterday who told me that a major university in australia has two lecturers in its english department and i said well who's the professor of english it doesn't have a professor the english language has in its highest expressions have been uh, reduced to an irrelevance by this crowd of economic rationalists, because you can't quantify what it gives people. I met a man the other day who'd been retrenched by and turned into a casual by his newspaper. Naturally, he lost all the benefits of uh, awards, etc. Uh, and he was an individual contractor without health care, without holidays, etc. Et and this individual contract seems to be to delight the neoliberals because apparently holiday pay and sick care are items of red tape that clog the market. From your perspective as somebody in their 80s, as you say you were you're a depression baby and indeed you dedicate the book to post-depression babies and your wife Judy well Judy of course deserves it because anybody who lives with a writer for so many years and supports their career as you have they deserve every dedication but I was interested that you dedicated it also to what I would call your generation um, and, and you know mine coming off the the back end of that too those opportunities that you talk about that children who were born during the depression in the early 30s they were too young to fight in world war ii and they yeah. they came they came of um, adulthood in those days 21 at a time when australian economy was starting to flourish under menzies and there was uh, a duty of care we felt in those days that the government cared for those who were less less able less privileged society assisted and we all joined in that cause we all signed up for it every time we paid our taxes we knew that's what was happening and i wonder when you think this big shift occurred? Uh, it occurred in the 70s. Conservatism changed from a belief that society had to be balanced between the 
less privileged and the, the big end of town, to use some a, a favourite cliche. And uh, Blake Bike Deacon introduced arbitration and conciliation because he wants to deal with industrial disputes because he knew that society, if you're going to have a traditional society, a capitalist society, you needed to balance and improve things the lower orders, otherwise there'd be trouble. And this was something that vanished when the proposition emerged in the 60s and 70s, that the market would look after everything. If you freed up, if you got rid of the union and freed up contractors, uh, you would you would not have unemployment. Uh, according to the neoliberals, our level of unemployment is based on the fact that we, the market would look after it all if only we could clear the way and really get rid of that red tape. Any government intervention is thus red tape. Such a thing as fulfillment from your job, the pride of knowing that you are making a good product and that you're not exploiting the public. I've known men who felt in business who felt that way. Uh, an old tailor called Scarf, Lebanese, they used to be stores all over Sydney. He didn't think that way. He had a powerful sense of pride in his own work. It begs the question, so the term public intellectual, which these days is sneered upon by, uh, by some in more conservative forces, you've written more than 50 fiction and non-fiction books. You've written a plethora of plays and screenplays, essays, articles for newspaper over the year, years. You're very comfortable in your writer as commentator position and you're not afraid to advocate on behalf of social justice and equality. And we all admire you for that. And it's a voice that's that... very kind of you. That's... Uh, well, it's a, voice that, it's a voice that many of us in the community want to hear and we need to hear. And the arrival of social media over the last eight to ten years and the advent of this online troll phenomenon has made this a bit of a more precarious sideline for writers. And I just wondered, what are your views at the moment on public commentary at the moment? And... Are we in danger of losing writers as public intellectuals? Are they are, are writers in danger of going, perhaps resisting the urge to go into that arena because it can be a terrifying place and maybe a new forthright, God help us, forthright strident generation such as a whole lot of new Peter Credlins and Andrew Boltz might just swoop in to take the void? Yes, and indeed. I went on Twitter for a time, but I haven't had time to go on Facebook or any of the others. So I'm typical of people my age. I've been a bit off the social media. I went on Twitter years ago because the publisher said it was good for, you know, to have a commentary online. You could use one, sell the other. But you can't, I found I couldn't say my new book, you know, the greatest thing since Ulysses has just been published. Please, please go out and buy it. I could not do that. There are writers I admire who can. Uh, you know, I've got a friend in England called Simon Seabag Montefiore, and he publicises his novels, his history and his novels, full, full pelt on social media. And I admire him for being, because we don't like to do it, but there's something in me from my childhood that, you know, there's something, 
It's a modesty. It's a, it's a modesty that we respect, but we wish you would. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I gradually withdrew from, from Twitter, but uh, it's a wonderful freedom to be able to express it. But, of course, the use of robotic machines that repeat the same insane opinion over and over, the intrusion of foreign government, the fact that you can have an anonymous tag and say anything you wish, also the fact that Zuckerman doesn't seem serious in his attempt to clean up uh, Facebook. Uh, and is said not to be by a number of comment, commentators. Uh, this is uh, very scary. I mean, imagine what... We've got an Australian now who is suffering in a foreign jail. He's a young man with Alzheimer's who's becoming a geriatric before our eyes, who's suffering great torment. He, he's, his name's the, the WikiLeaks uh, word, Julian oh, Assange. And we, he gets not a word from our government. He, our government is content for him to go through that torment because he's slightly too Asperger's to be, to be helped. And then there are women and children in Syria, girls who have made ambiguous decisions, let's face it, ambiguous decisions by the standards of our society. But what is it worth being an Australian anymore? You get help if you're nice. If you play dirty with foreign governments or if, if you are a radical with foreign governments, I don't know how much effort is made. I, w I wonder whether you think people's memories will be long, they will reflect upon the hardships of uh, the past 18 months. Perhaps they'll, you know, lack of leadership or, or, or maybe they appreciated the Morrison government's leadership. Do you think, do you think, this will be a, a, a different kind of election? Do you think the issues will be a bit different? Certainly it seems that a climate change will be there in the fall. I hope it is. But remember we had very imperfect Labor leaders in the past, at least a sense that they didn't despise what they were trying to be, that they were leading the Australian, inviting the Australian people to make a leap, like talk with the Accord which was probably the beginning of the smashing of the union in another way. But it was the leading of people towards a new kind of discourse, a new kind of Australia. And they, revolutionary in terms of the new economics, they were not true socialists like all those catastrophes that happened in the Whitlam era, whereas just now it's just read the polls and... Yourself accordingly. Another rant of yours, Tom, I wanted to discuss. In a minute, I will ask you uh, if you could to read a piece from a little segment from your book. But just before we do, another rant which recurs again through the book is your relationship with the Catholic Church and, mm. and, and instances of clergy cover up on behalf of priests who have sexually abused children. And, of course, the case of Cardinal George Pell looms large. Last time you and I met, it was in 2016, and you came to the bookshop for the release of your novel Crimes of the Father, which remains a, a, in, one of my, like, highlight reads in recent years. And because we, I think I told you at the time, we take eight book clubs through the shop, we did it as a book, and it was just such a great book to do. So many themes, so many issues. It was wonderful. But 
I don't want to go into the specifics of the Pell case, but I wondered if you can reflect more generally upon that time of extraordinary findings and allegations and royal commissions and court mm. cases. Did any good come out of it? Oh, yes, although the powers in the church. I was talking to a young priest whom I won't name recently, and he said there's going to be this bishop's conference coming up in Australia. And he said they've appointed dreadful people who are likely to agree with them on the magisterium of the Vatican and on the authority of bishops, on the hierarchy. Enough of them anyhow to make it a mere exercise. And they haven't taken it on. You can see when they come out condemning stem cell research going on into vaccines. And and they had they had living children and they haven't compensated to this properly to this day. I was a little uneasy at the verdict, although I knew how important it was for the abused to get a win. But it is true that sacristies are very busy places now, and therefore I had a bit of the same doubt that Brennan, the Jesuit, who's also a professor of law, had. But I, I felt that in a way, the Cardinal had showed who he was in the Royal Commission to an extent that you can't escape the court of who you are. And some of the things he said, such as that Risdale's nephew couldn't look him in the eye, and so he didn't believe it. Well, if you're an abused child, are you going to rock up like a Boy Scout and say, excuse me, sir, but, uh, you know, my uncle's been abusing me. I acknowledge the High Court decision and therefore I go along with it because the thing I hate is that the right are very selective. If it's Marbo, the High Court is interventionist and has to be looked at, filled with, if only we could dig up some old lakes to put in there. Uh, And then uh, when they get a, a verdict that goes in their direction, as this one did because of Al's connections with the right-wing politicians, then, you know, I call independent uh, decision without political intervention. And he has to be awarded the credit of that because an independent judiciary, the end of an independent judiciary, God, just imagine what that would be like. And anyhow, that was something that I uh, wanted to write about, uh, acknowledge the limitations of the law Acknowledged my own doubt season at the time of the seventh. I accepted the verdict and I accepted the exoneration or the the doubt over guilt, crucial doubt over guilt. You're listening to the Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Your writing in the book, Tom, about this, I, th- I think is is among probably for me the most interesting components. This and also your view of Australian history and how we, in your lifetime, we've changed our view of how long our history is. That also is important. But, but with the with the the Catholic Church and abusive children, and what I what I find so meaningful is that you've trained for the priesthood. You are a committed Catholic, and even when you came to the shop in two thousand and sixteen, and we didn't know anything about the court cases or the outcomes or the overturning of the convictions or anything. You had this seed of doubt, and you, but you were so greatly concerned about 
abuse within the church and you were prepared to talk about the conflicts that that presented you. Yes. And yeah. and and priests you knew who were good priests, one of whom you put in your story, in your novel, but priests also who were terrible abusers and you also knew or knew of or, or watched them on the television like Risdale and... I just I thought I found it very very profound some of your comments there and you know you're not you're not afraid in the book to take on any of the you know you you take on the high court you take on the Catholic Church you take on death and you look him or her in the eye which I found interesting too because you've had your your own connection with death and I wondered for yes, the listeners uh, if you can just of sort course of I, I got back to really good health thanks to nursing and so on but it was an over seven hour operation so i was pretty far out in space uh for the first couple of months covering able to go back to writing after a couple of months and the first day i could only write uh, for half an hour this was when the trees beyond the window were still too busy i i couldn't look at the trees because the leaves were doing the, it overburdened the brain Leaves were doing so many bloody things. <laughs> well, I don't know whether you've read Colin Toybin's um, account from memory. It was in the London Review of Books, a long piece about his cancer treatment and recovery. He said there was a good one to get that. Yeah. Well, he was. He spent days and days on the sofa. Even getting up to make a cup of tea would make him feel feel slightly nauseous. And for writers, this must be so frustrating. This is a bizarre sort of segue to Colin Toybin, whose most recent recent novel, The Magician, is about the life of Thomas Mann, the German writer. And he also, through his fictional account of this person's life, has made me think about fatherhood, the role we have as parents, and also, and here's the segue, grandparenthood. And you have you have beautiful reflections on the role of the grandparent in your book, Tom. It's yes, a- indeed. Having just not so long ago joined the Grandparents Club with four of my own, you're so right, you can just have a glass of wine at the end of the day because they've gone home. <laughs> yeah, but you can really make problems for the parents while you've got them. You sure go can. Hands, <laughs> go home singing profane ditties and just like my, my father... He taught them ditties from the Middle East in World War II, right? and some of them he'd forgotten to clean up. So some of them were. <laughs> the parents, the parents get very cross with you, but I, I again, it's another lovely reflection in this book. And before we end, and before I ask you my last couple of questions, I wondered whether you might like to read a little bit. If there's one particular passage you might like to read to us. In preparation for today, I listened to an interview you did at the Edinburgh Writers' Festival in 2019, and lo and behold, you sang Walsing Matilda. <laughs> yes, it's a Scots tune. So I, so I, know, the, I know you don't mind showing off. Blooming, the late-blooming folk singer in me. Yes. Bravo. And then you dared to sing to the Scottish audience a Scottish love song, which I thought was even more impressive. Uh, look, forgive me while I take a moment find the grandparent section. Take all your time. Grandparents, yes. When my daughters were in their late adolescence, I saw them that when they had children, I would be willing to 
in the manner of Evelyn Moore, to receive their little people suitably potty trained for five minutes at Easter and Christmas. And if they didn't mess things up in my office, send them away with a boiled lolly. Occasionally, I would see a three-year-old say something that reminded me of my own daughters at that age, and a nostalgia of knowing for knowing an infant, a three-year-old girl, say, in that phase of their life, when they are learning language and their demands are imperial, delivered with a gravitas suited to absolute monarchy. In cafes, we called to some harried young mother trying to reason with one of these fair imitations of a 17th century Romanov called the child. Don't worry, we had one just like that with the writer. Thank God those days are over. But we are not always our masters in our reactions, however. I barely had time to be surprised by the excitement my older daughter's announcement of a pregnancy induced in me. I wanted to see the face and weight the character of the little unknown kinsman, it was a male, whom she carried inside her. The imaging pictures and videos were scanned for minutes, but I watched them over and over. My chances of becoming a boiled lolly once a year grandfather had been swept away by something more potent and primal than reason. Grandparenthood no longer signified unwelcome snot and more pungent waste products and the infatuation grew more intense on the day the child beautiful love it when i used to go up with my little granddaughters i loved the way they bossed me around you know barely out of a napkin and as i say they got the demeanor of a romanov sending mm. sending divisions down to liberate Crimea. No one tells them to be quiet anymore. So, Tom, thank you for that. My last question to you is a question we will ask everybody who comes on the book pod. If you found yourself marooned on a desert island for six months, which is the one book that you would want to have with you? Well, if I knew it was going to be six weeks, is it? Six months. Gosh, I'm thinking you'd you'd have to read it 20 times over. Let's say six weeks. How about that? Well, I won't say, if it's going to be six months, you can still, I would ration each day how many pages, 30 into a thousand, read 10 pages a day and be stunned with myself uh, of um, War and Peace. Because I've read it once when I was younger and it's time I read it again and I would linger and practice the Slavic names just to use up time. Well, you could do that on a desert island because you could read out aloud. Nobody would be there saying you pronounced Dostoyevsky incorrectly or yes. whatever it may be. And you've, and you've got uh, Rostov, the Rostov family. They're easy ones. But uh, all the others, I mean, it is their capacity uh, in women's names to feminise the women's name and to masculinize the men's name, names. I found that Gailey did that. Uh, in, in, uh, if, if you're married to a Keneally or you're a female Keneally, you're called O'Kinela. Uh, and if you're, if there's another sound for the male, 
but uh, and not missing their second names, giving myself little quizzes. And uh, then I'd make up out of wood a little cricket game, six sided. And I'd play that game with the characters playing test matches against her. <laughs> oh, there goes Anna Rostov again, she said. Are you a, fr- are you a frustrated John Arlett, I wonder? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, once met at a book signing uh, the beloved um, Henry Blofeld, but you meet wonderful people at book signings. I once met Derrida and I, I thought, God, I won't understand the thing he says. And then he said it's been hot in LA, hasn't it? Was he in a queue? Was he in a queue to have his book signed? Yes, yeah. No, he, he was signing his own book. Tom, can you promise us that you're going to have more rants? Oh, I would like to have another rant. Because you, you haven't talked about women a lot. I know it was important because you mentioned it in your in your preface in your, in the beginning of the book. And, and, and there's and, a chapter on women. Yeah, but it, it seems like you have a lot more that you want to say about so many yes, things. Yes, there is a lot more. One thing I was thinking of writing about is that males fall in love. It's not that men aren't romantic enough. It's that they're too romantic when they're in love. And they look upon the woman as sui generis, the way Botticelli looks upon Venus. He presents Venus emerging from the sea on a half shell like a bloody oyster. You know, whereas Venus has a mother and a father and weird family, and instead of believing that your girlfriend is, is your beloved inamorata is Venus on the shell, you should be looking at how weird her uncles and aunts are. That weirdness will visit you. <laughs> Venus will bring that. So Every Christmas day, Tom. Yeah, that's right. Now, wouldn't it be, I'd love to write about mitochondria leave too. I've got a projected novel called The Love Life of Mitochondria Leave because the future of humanity depended on what work she had. That she, she was surrounded by other women in her community, but none of their lines have lasted. There's another book, Tom. Come on. Well, the, Get cracking. Are. Get yeah. cracking. And can you, and while you're at it, could you do another a, a bloody good rant number two? Because this is wonderful, and I have a feeling next year is going to be quite an explosive year. I think people. I'm not suggesting for a second it's going to be a re, like the Renaissance after the Black Plague, but I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of energy in the air, and, and it, a lot has changed, and people aren't going to take the same arrangements as they did beforehand. Do you think um, it? Do you think it will be exciting? I, I think it will be exciting as long as we don't have too deadly a virus come out. I'm uh, have a great fear of um, respiratory diseases based on having had diphtheria as a kid. A diphtheria epidemic uh, uh, vaccination began in the mid 1920s, but it didn't reach Australia till 1933, and kids were still it, it didn't penetrate. Kids in the bush, in particular, were still dying of it up into World War Two. So about 1939, I got it, and I can still remember the night of just not having breath. 
you know, if if I can just die with the breath or for laughing too heartily at the punchline of a joke, uh, that would be a good way to go, rather than rasping one's way to death. Many old people, of course, die of pneumonia, which is called the old man's friend, some friend. Uh, it's called the old man's friend because it puts an end to their suffering. But it is suffering in its own right. So I'm with Woody, the terrible Woody Allen, who was oft quoted before he lost his public standing. He said, I don't mind death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> or Oscar Wilde, who said on his deathbed, either that wallpaper goes or I do. Tom, I have just, I've had such a ball. I wish we could talk for another four hours and I'm sure the podcast listeners will too, but I really want to thank you, uh, not just for today, of course, but for all of the work, all of the energy, all of the advocacy and all of the, just the way you've touched. You make me cry. Well, you've touched so many, you've touched so many of our hearts over so many years and not just my generation, which is coming along the coattails of yours, but younger people too. I really would love to touch base with you before the election because there's the suggestion of having a couple of different panel sessions at the Wheeler Centre, which we can beam you in if you can't travel down. Yes. But I think it's important to have not just political writers. I mean, I love Laura Tingle and she'll be there, but it would be so good to have someone like yourself as well. So I might keep in touch with you if that's okay. Yes, indeed. You know which uh, Tingle's a good woman. She's a good woman. Yeah. Between us, I hope that your cousin through marriage or niece through marriage is how you describe Christina. I hope she gets down to the lower house and she really starts packing a big punch. I think she will. I tell you what, it won't be for want of being a formidable woman, and she should. But because she's a formidable woman, there was an editorial that probably appeared in The Age too, in bed piece, by Malcolm Knox, who's a very fine writer. And he goes after her for having so much ambition. Oh, What's no, with we that? Don't, we don't go after blokes for having. The ambition can be taken as red, I think. I, 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 don't, I, I have never, I just don't understand that. I, you know, I don't understand why yeah, women... I mean, from a writer of his quality, if someone from Sky News had written it, understand. We haven't even talked about Schindler or any of the other extraordinary moments and lightning rod moments that you've had in your life. But thank you for having a bloody good rant with us today. And to everyone listening, this is such a great book, Thomas Keneally, A Bloody Good Rant, published by our dear friends, Alan and Unwin. Thank you, Tom. Not at all. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.